Welcome back to 96 Greers, a podcast where we watch every single film with Judy Greer in the cast. Who are we? Well, I am Reg. And I'm Patrick. And we are very excited tonight. We are about to leave to go to the Music Box Theater here in Chicago. That's right. Um, And as part of the Chicago International Film Festival, we are going to be seeing the premiere the city premiere yeah. certainly of uh, eric larue eric larue is the directorial debut of chicago's favorite son michael shannon that's right um so we're very excited for take that, that studs turkle <laughs> <laughs> okay that's the third time i've said that today <laughs> take Weird. a shot every time yeah um, favorite son is a tier yeah okay fair um, enough yes yes he, he has reached that tier yeah um so uh, so we're very excited. Um, and of course, this film not only has Judy Greer in the cast, but uh, stars Judy Greer. Mm-hmm. Um, the plot, as we understand it, is um, a character study maybe um, centered on the mother of the titular Eric LaRue, mm-hmm. um, a young man who has uh, perpetrated a mass shooting at his school, I believe, and sort of um, the movie follows her in the aftermath of that. That is my understanding of, of what this movie's about. Right. So this is uh, taken from a 2002 play, also named Eric LaRue. Um, the film is written by Brett Nouveau, and it, he adapted his own play, okay. Eric LaRue. And um, it was actually decided, they decided to make this into a movie while Michael Shannon was staging a stage version of the play and another mass shooting happened nearby and mm. they were, were sort of talking about like this is you know m- much more relevant than it was in 2002 what if we sort of stage this into a uh, theatrical production or not theatrical a uh, cinematic production mm. I'm, I'm not familiar with Brett Nouveau I I sort of dabble in in keeping up with uh, contemporary playwrights, but mm-hmm. uh, that's not a name I'm familiar with. Well, and I'll, and I'll be perfectly honest. I'm so unfamiliar. It's probably mispronounced. N-E-V-E-U. Brett Nouveau. Um, but at any rate, I'm, I'm also not familiar with him. He did uh, do it as part of the... Uh, what was the theater uh, troupe that Michael Shannon helped found? Red, Red Orchid? Red Orchid. So this was part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, this is sort of... You know, all part of Michael Shannon's the- theatrical roots. Mm. Um, go, you know, goes back now uh, twenty one years. Um, I'm I was very curious. What this is Michael Shannon's directorial debut. Mm-hmm. Um, w- at Judy Greer. Uh, you know, we have covered, in fact, at least one um, dramatic lead role of her um, from this year in Aporia, right. but it's, it's an uncommon, uh, role for her to have. Mm-hmm. What are your expectations or hopes or fears, uh, sort of going into this? What, what I'm expecting is a, a film where a lot of the energy goes into the performances. I mean, Michael Shannon, of course, is an actor, stage director. Um, I can only imagine that he would, Uh, approach directing from an actor's perspective you know you have some directors uh like your um your 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 michaels bay your your ridley scott and such where the um the, the the set pieces the action um the the spectacle is sort of the the focus and and the characters um are sort of there to serve that but for for michael shannon just given his career i would imagine that um that the movie is going to be in the service of uh, 
well thought out, uh, well defined characters and very strong emotional performances. Mm -hmm. So I, I suppose what I am expecting is, is something where there's, um, a real groundedness and intimacy, um, to the film. Aesthetically, I'm not really sure what to expect. He doesn't strike me as someone who would bring a really unconventional aesthetic no. to the film. I mean, I mean, who who knows? Right. right? We'll find out once we go see it. But I, I, I was thinking I the exact same thing. Yeah. Like, I feel like a lot of first-time directors, they see it as their opportunity to, like, make their mark mm-hmm. and, like, have people go, wow, that's that's a movie that was real. That wasn't just an actor who showed up. Mm-hmm. That was someone who declared himself a filmmaker going into it. I was, I'm was i thinking something like Bradley Cooper directing A Star Is Born. He, It's, like, very forcefully, like, I have a cinematic vision. Right. Um, Michael Shannon doesn't feel like he has that sort of ego layer where he's like oh i gotta prove myself i want i gotta impress people he's he strikes me as the kind of artist who pursues what he's interested in and he pursues projects that he can collaborate on with other artists who he has a working relationship with yeah um you know we know we have seen him um, opposite Judy Greer in Pottersville. Um, so we know that they've known each other at least that long. Mm-hmm. And he does seem like someone um, who is, uh, you know, very much... Con- he, we know that he is very much connected to the Chicago theater scene. I'm, I'm assuming that Brett Nouveau is a, a Chicago artist. Uh, um, yes, and Tracy Letts as well is in the film. Oh, and Tracy Letts, yes. And of course, of course, Tracy Letts also um, very active in, in the Chicago theater community. Um so, uh, so, so that is my assumption that, that this is going to, that this is a project that he, um, was excited about, um, that he has a, a, a familiarity with the material and that he's, uh, working with, uh, people who he has strong collaborative relationships with that. That is my hope for the film. I think something that is going to come into play here is the fact that he has directed this material mm-hmm. and that he has in fact directing experience at all. And therefore, like, I think he is going to come into the role of a film director from the background of theater, where it's going to be about the ensemble. It's going to be about the actors. It's going to be about how do we use the camera so they don't get in the actor's way and we give the actors the space to act the way like on on stage you don't you know you don't have to stay in focus you don't necessarily need to hit exact marks i'm picturing giving a a lot more of that control back to the actors and Mm it will be less sort of formally driven yes Um, i'd agree with that so aporia we did do recently that Mm -hmm. was a recent judy greer film and Mm -hmm. it did play in some theaters but it was a very low budget small sci-fi movie right um, and it's dramatic, but it is still, uh, it, at heart, it's like a genre film. I would assume from looking at her filmography, as we both have done so many times just from doing this podcast, mm-hmm. like this is the highest profile dramatic role for Judy Greer that she's had to date. I would say that's true in terms of having a, a lead role. Right, exactly. Um, exactly. It is a dramatic role in something like The Descendants, and that's a higher profile film, certainly. But mm-hmm. like, yes, and t- as far as like a lead, as far as like anchoring a film right um which is again an assumption i'm making it might be more of an ensemble piece than than uh than we think Mm -hmm. what do you think about judy Greer's ability to do something like that she so often um these days plays a mother character and plays someone who 
you know, through that relationship has something big to deal with, like in Aporia. I think this is probably something she can handle. Um, you know, she is, she's an actor who, you know, especially in dramatic roles, wears her heart on her sleeve. But we've also seen her in roles where um, she is playing someone who's a bit burned out, who's a bit, you know, on the defensive, um, which is what I would imagine from this movie. I like to think about movies relative to each other and, and kind of um, the way that I tend to parse things is, oh, what does this remind me of? And uh, when I heard about this film, immediately I thought of, we need to talk about Kevin. Yeah, that's um, what I was thinking the same thing. You know, where it's it's kind of focusing on, um, you know, um, a, a, a child who does something horrifically violent and the and the way that it impacts his mother and sort of the um, the complete isolation from the community and, and the regret and all the complicated feelings that um, that come from um, such a horrific thing happening. Um, but I I have faith in in, in Judy Greer. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and like actually we in need to talk about we trust. You know, we need to talk about Kevin is an interesting movie to bring up because that the what we have said we expect from Eric Larue as mm-hmm. far as like from the director's side like the what Lynn Ramsey does in we need to talk about Kevin is like the exact opposite almost where it is so about style it is so about interjecting different timelines and these expressive moments yeah. and breaking reality in certain parts even yeah sort of a a, a thought experiment of a movie. Right. It'll be interesting to see, given that that is the other, like, most prominent film about this subject matter. Yeah. It'll be interesting to compare the two. The other film I was thinking of was Gus Van Sant's Elephant, um, which is, I mean, just because it's about a school shooting. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it did come out around the time that the play did in the early in the early aughts. That's correct. Um but that's a that's a very different take. I mean, uh, again, it's it's more about the formal aspects of of how it's shot and how it's sort of um, staged, mm-hmm. and also it's very much much focused on the students, the the children in the school, and the and the, and the children who who carry out. Uh, the violence. I, I I can't even remember a scene with an adult in it. I was about movie. to say it's very notably uh, n- does not care about any of the adults in mm-hmm. the. It's about sort of isolating the kids in this in this world. Yeah, yeah. So I guess the the two movies that I have to to compare it to are not really what I'm gonna ex- what I'm expecting from Michael Shannon mm-hmm. as a director. But I mean, he could he could surprise us, and uh, he could surprise us. Uh, Again, when after the movie with the Q and A, he is going to be present. I'm assuming there's going to be a question and answer. He might just introduce it and head out. Um, but if there is mm-hmm. a Q and A, I'm going to whip out my phone and see what I can record, and maybe you'll hear some of that. And oh. if you hear a little bit of muddled nothing right after this, then you'll know that the recording didn't go well, and, <laughs> and that you won't get the whole Q and A. But yeah, um, I, I will say the last few years have made attending the Chicago International Film Festival a bit more complicated. But it is something that I've done pretty much every year for the past several years. And I feel like with a film festival in general, probably. But my experience with this film festival is that it's a real crapshoot. I have seen some of my favorite movies at this festival. I have seen... I... I have I sure have sat through some some things that people decided to 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 commit to celluloid yeah. at this festival. So um that's another reason why I'm I'm a I'm a bit hesitant to really commit to, to what I expect just because I know it can it can really run the gamut. But I 
I mean, I'm familiar with Michael Shannon as an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, I have faith in him as, as someone who who can develop and carry out an artistic vision. Yeah, I think the worst that I would feel about this movie would be, oh, it was sort of plain or something. Yeah. Like, I just don't, I don't think it's going to be terrible. I think I just, yeah, I just have confidence that like Michael Shannon knows the material. Mm-hmm. Michael Shannon knows how to work with actors. Yeah. And Michael Shannon has no... Uh, career reason to like oh I better become a director now so right. he's only making this movie because he wanted to right so exactly. I have a feeling that this is going to be a pretty strong uh, project but mm-hmm. um, we'll we'll I guess we'll just have to see yeah into the breach and uh, we'll be reporting back soon through the magic of editing it's like we never left but uh, it is actually the next day, yeah. when we're recording now, um, we saw Eric LaRue last night, and um, now we are ready to talk about it. But first, we will start with a summary of the plot. Janice LaRue's son, Eric, is in prison for killing three classmates in cold blood. Her husband, Ron, turns to religion for answers, specifically through the charismatic preacher at the new church he attends with his overly friendly co-worker, Lisa. Janice is much less certain of how to move forward with her life and contemplates an offer from her pastor to have a face-to-face meeting with the grieving mothers of Eric's victims. So, Patrick, uh, what did you think of Eric LaRue? I really, really liked it. Yeah, okay. I was, it was, there was, it was such a pleasant surprise. We talked about our expectations going in, and I don't think the word comedy was mentioned. <laughs> but this movie really is a dark comedy. It it does have its comedic moments. I, I will say that um, we we're watching this in a very specific context where this was a Chicago premiere um, with a lot of Chicago theater people um, as part of the creation of this movie. Um, So we were watching it with a packed house, um, very enthusiastic. And I think a lot of people were uh, fans of uh, a red orchid or maybe a, uh, a red orchid being the Chicago theater company, um, that was co-founded by Michael Shannon and by the screenwriter um, Brett Nouveau, uh, who also wrote the original play that the film is adapted from. So I th- I felt like, um, you know, sometimes when we when you see a premiere in an art house theater, especially if it's... Um, you know, especially if the director is someone who has a bit of a cult of personality built up around them, uh, there does tend to be these like very oversized reactions from the audience. Sure, we we were both there when uh, Phantom Thread screened at the Music Box that's, in seventy millimeter. That's exactly what I was thinking. And of. every time Daniel Day Lewis swore, people laughed like it was the funniest fucking thing they'd ever heard. Yeah, yeah. Which I I don't think I don't think this crowd was quite to that level, but it it did feel like there were a lot of sort of bigger reactions than you might expect from your average film going crowd but that being said um i will agree with you that this film was uh funnier than i was expecting so um judy greer plays janice who is the uh the protagonist the the character that we spend the most time with and uh her husband is played by alexander skarsgård uh so Stellan Skarsgård lo- loaned out one of his large adult sons uh, to Michael Shannon, um, and we thank uh, the Kingdom of Sweden for their donation. Um, 
I didn't recognize him at first because uh, he he played the character. I don't want to say that that Ron is a comic relief character, but he is sort of an inherently comical person. He's he's a, a guy who's like a like a pretty, you know, typical small town conservative American dad who's not in touch with his feelings and doesn't know how to read the room and just sort of um is is happy to you know get along with with everyone who he talks to uh which is very unlike um a lot of the roles that you associate Alexander Skarsgård with I mean I mean you know as I've said I think on this podcast before I'm a fan of True Blood and you know he plays a a a, a Viking vampire uh on True Blood um which is my main association with him and I and then I was like oh my god that's Alexander Skarsgård um you know uh the the Northman um Robert Eggers movie um from the last couple years um Infinity Pool Grandin Brandon Cronenberg's movie from this year uh so this is like a very different context to see him in because it's usually these like deadly sexy kind of roles you know and and he's this you know kind of goof um but but he does have a lot of comedic moments definitely more than I was expecting considering that this is um a film about the the aftermath of a school shooting yeah and I do want to push back a little bit and this might just be where we differ uh-huh. um like i do think this is a comedy and i don't think it is just oh i'm being swayed by the reactions of the crowd we happen to be in i think the reactions were big and i think uh-huh. any comedy is going to be work better in a crowd with that's engaged with it sure um but like i specifically remember the very first scene um where uh steve who uh, is played by paul sparks this is the pastor at the church that janice attends oh right right the very first scene is him sort of addressing her in the grocery store and he is just sublimely awkward like making weird small talk about cereal yeah and she's supremely uncomfortable because she is just like in a horrible headspace and he is you know uh He's coming from such an odd angle that she doesn't know what to do with his energy. Yeah. Um, but he's be, but he's not being but he's being direct at the same time. Yeah. So and that was like for me very uncomfortable. Like going yeah. in assuming a drama, and I think the the first segment of this podcast says we both sort of went in assuming this is going to be a drama. Right. Um. There was a lot of laughter during that scene, and yeah. I was sort of like, oh yeah, it's like a festival crowd. Like you know, it's like people they don't know what to do with their discomfort, so they mm-hmm. laugh, and mm-hmm. it's it's like you'll see that in horror movies as well where mm-hmm. people are just laughing throughout a horror movie whenever something messed up happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a while to actually come around and be like, oh no, 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 this this whole thing is supposed to be comedic, but I think like uh, I think the character of Ron is like a really good example of when I say it's a comedy, I don't mean that like uh, it's not you, lighthearted. You're it's not lighthearted, and you're correct that he there's no comic relief. I think the closest you get to comic relief are um, uh, Janice's bosses. Yeah. Um, because they just are so rem- they're the only like characters who are so removed from the heaviness that like their reactions become very silly. Yeah. But like, um, it's it's uh, but it is very overtly funny, and it does see the 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 humor in the absurdity of the yes. situation and to me this is like a movie fundamentally about like the dark absurdity of irresolvable horror just like the yeah. absolute worst possible no good reason no pre- no way of predicting it no way of dealing with it there's mm-hmm. nothing to do with all of the toxic emotions that it that it 
to in everyone it touches like there's just nothing to do with that energy mm-hmm. and there's no productive way to deal with it like it's fundamentally sort of about that absurdity mm-hmm. and but like specifically how absurd it is mm-hmm. like I was going in being like, okay, this is a drama. So at some point there's going to be like an in the bedroom kind of a scene where Janice and her husband are like shouting at each other. And they're like, no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. Right. Da, da, da. And they're like chasing each other through the house and right. whatever. And it's like, there is a scene where they blow up at each other, but it's like specifically just highlights um, just how far Ron has like sort of retreated into this like, uh, Jesus will make everything okay. It's, you know, it's it's inherently like childish the way he does it, where he's yeah. just like, oh, I don't have to take any responsibility for anything. Right. I can just keep saying Jesus whenever bad feelings happen. Yeah. And if I say Jesus enough and I get sort of love bombed by this fucking church, yeah. then I don't have to actually think about anything. And that's a, that's a perfectly good solution for this. Um, and like, it's, but it's like, even that blow up between the two of them is about highlighting the fundamental absurdity of his position. There, there is an, an absurdity in the, the darkness of the, of the material and, and the gravity of, of the material. I think, I think a lot of that all, you know, kind of to, to piggyback off of what you're saying, I think a lot of that also comes from how you have these characters, you have, you have the two, um, the two pastors you've got, Bill and Steve, um, Bill being the, the Tracy Letts character, who's a bit more slick, a bit more, um, you know, of that evangelical showmanship. And then you have, have Steve, who's a, the, the Presbyterian pastor and, um, is just, uh, like Michael Scott levels of awkwardness, uh, you know, in, in every conversation he has basically. Um, and then you have, you know, Ron, who, like you said, is, is, uh, you know, just using the most uh, childish, simplistic interpretations of um, of his theology to try and uh, muscle his way out of uh, dealing with any kind of grief or guilt or or any uncomfortable emotion. Um, and I think what is both funny and scary is that none of these men are equipped to to be any kind of leadership with navigating their community through this tragedy. And yet they are so convinced that they are the ones who have to do it. I mean, you have the, 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 this um, sort of uh, background farce of both pastors wanting to be the mediator that brings about reconciliation between Janice and the mothers of Eric's victims and how it's not at all about their community healing and it's completely about their reputations as yeah, being they're the very church. opportunistic. Yeah, yeah, they are. And 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 there is this sort of um weird unspoken um uh, uh, a competition between the two churches where you, you kind of get like um, you, you know, the sense of like, oh, the, the one church seems to be a bit more established in the community, but it does it doesn't have the 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 flash and the sizzle of the of these like, you know, people talking in tongues and things like that at the other church. And um, so it seems to be like almost this conversation between uh, two different Christianities, because I mean, this one is, is like uh, one is like I'm going to be the touchy feely quasi therapist version yeah. of a moral leader, yeah, but without any of the actual training or right. knowledge 
or experience or expertise or skills required to be at all effective in it. Right. And the other is I'm going to blast the grief out of you with just like pure showmanship. You know, and, and Ron um, favors the, the showmanship church and Janice favors the, the faux therapist church. So um, Ron is saying, oh, well, you know, I, I think Bill should be the one to, to lead this and, and he'll he'll bring his anointing oils. And it's just sort of like, well, if that's not like a part of your faith, then why would that help you? He's like, you don't understand. This is really going to be better because he's going to do a laying out of hands yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, so like, I feel like this movie is like, I, I, an alternate title could be thoughts and prayers, which yeah. is just like, which is just like this movie is about not like, um, school shootings, mm-hmm. uh, mass shootings, um, in, in any location, mm-hmm. the, these things that will never be addressed and will continue to happen, um, at an alarming frequency. Uh, this is like literally what the movie is about, right. but that is just one thing in our modern society that is just like so totally horrible and so clearly never going to be repaired. Yeah. And every single reasonable solution to it has been deemed unreasonable by everyone who has the power to do it. Mm-hmm. And what you do as a human being in the world who realizes that you can't actually fix anything, even though there's like things that clearly can be fixed and should be fixed. Yeah. Um. Like again, mass shootings could be one thing, but it's but like, there's just, you know, good reaction to COVID is another thing yeah. that is like that was front of my mind as I was watching this movie. What you what you do is you either like sink yourself like dwelling on the horror horror of it all, mm-hmm. or you try to craft your own version of denial mm-hmm. that is helpful, or even like you just sort of try to take the pressure off yourself by just picking a person and saying, "I'm just going to follow what they tell me to do," mm-hmm. because that's. Because then I can turn my brain off and I don't have to actually deal and grapple with these things. Mm-hmm. I can just, and it's like for some people that's, oh, the vaccines are microchips and they're causing autism, da, 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 mm-hmm. da. And that's how I'm going to react to COVID. And it's because I have chosen these people to follow. Mm-hmm. And then some people are like, just to talk about myself for an example, I have no expertise in public health. I have no expertise in medicine. Mm-hmm. I barely graduated high school. I don't understand how shit works. If someone were to challenge me of like, why are you getting booster shots? Why are you wearing a mask? I, I in public, which is I, I'm, you know, I continue to mask in public and right. public transportation and things like that. Like I wouldn't be able to actually say, like put a strong argument forward because mm-hmm. I don't have those facts in my head. That's right. I'm just not the person who has those facts in my head. Right. But I have looked up the people who I have deemed they do have the facts. Mm-hmm. And in my case, I'm not uh, being an anti-vaxxer, like lunatic. Uh-huh. I'm, I am, you know, pro public health, but like, it's still just me taking my anxiety and putting it on someone else's expertise that I perceive. Right. And being like, like, oh, well, the World Health Organization said to, the CDC said to. Right. And even getting to a point where now you have people who are, who just continue to put their faith in the CDC and have stopped masking as opposed to kind of thinking critically about like, you know, it's like, okay, well, the CDC says that we don't have to mask anymore because the the rate of positive, of positive tests has gone down. And, and it's like, well, also people are testing at home and not reporting the outcome. So you have less 
data to work right. with. But it's still it's still like, oh, well, well, the, the person who is the authority and who is in charge of this thing said X, Y, Z. So therefore X, Y, Z. We all pick our authorities that we will trust sure. because that's the only way you can operate as a human being in a world like this. Like you, you know, whether it's uh, like, oh, this person is a scientist uh, with a background in pandemic, whatever. Yeah. Or it's like, well, this is just like a leftist I follow on TikTok who has made a lot of good points about labor or whatever. Like at the same time, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 Reg yeah. just made a face. <laughs> I'm saying I'm like like that's I'm not saying I, I it's sort of the fundamental absurdity of trying to grapple with things that you just fundamentally yeah. like can't be grappled with. Yeah. And it's like the alternative is Judy Greer's character Janice in this film uh, is just like, no, I'm going to look face on at the horror and just think to myself how horrible it is all right. the time. And I'm not going and like I'm not really going to trust anyone else to deal with it because right. I'm very skeptical of them. And she has every reason to be skeptical. Mm -hmm. Her life is not better off than anyone else's. Right. Um, there's a, uh, one of the mothers, the, the three, the, her son has killed three boys. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and the mothers of the three boys are all, uh, characters in this film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're referred to as the other mothers. Um, so, so one of them, Laura, uh, goes to uh, Bill uh, Tracy Letts' uh, church. He's the pastor who's sort of the fire and brimstone, you know, theatrical preacher kind of uh, uh, pastor. Um, and Laura goes there and she is like fully bought in at the services. She's speaking in tongues. Um, when Alexander Skarsgård goes up to talk to her and he breaks down crying, she just sort of tells him, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Like, my son's with Jesus right now. And the way I know that is because he talked to me. Yeah. And it's like... And she comforts him. Yeah. And, and she tell, she doesn't tell him that to make him feel guilty or bad. She tells him that because... Um, I, I, I don't know if this, if this was your take on the character because she really only gets this one scene. My take on the character is that she fully believes it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that And that she's not... She's not kidding herself or she's not I, I don't think that that she's um having having some kind of delusion. I, right. I, I think it's Well, it's, I, I get I, what I was gonna say was I personally am an atheist. Right. So to me, it is a delusion, but it's like it's just a delusion that makes that makes the horror of life livable. This doesn't seem like it is a dramatic break with her previous worldview. No, 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 no. She is. But like at the same time, this is a character who could seem very laughable. And in fact, in certain scenes, it is funny how she's mm -hmm. sort of like falling backwards and Alexander Skarsgård has to like kind of run up and right, catch her right. as she's speaking in tongues of like that. She's probably uh, going to get through this trauma better than anyone else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because she she's the one who um, when Pastor Steve is trying to get the a meeting of the mothers, it it it, it just kind of made me think of like like a Mad Max kind of thing. The yeah. way that it's like you you can hear you can hear the capital letters when they say well, a meeting of the mothers. They're all the other they're mothers. all they're, they've already been codified into like these. This is like how they are forever known. Yeah, is like the the capital M mothers of the slain children. Yeah. you know, and the and the child. And and the Slayer, yeah, you know, like these are the four mothers, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and it's like this is like this mythology has built up, and it's very right. clear that both these pastors, um, realize that 
their own stature within this community will be greatly helped exactly. by, by being able to utilize these mothers. That aspect specifically, that story, yeah. the thing it made me most think of was actually early Alexander Payne. Like if you look at uh, mm-hmm. something like Citizen Ruth, mm-hmm. there's a lot of Citizen Ruth in uh, Eric LaRue. Hmm. Citizen Ruth is more cynical. Alexander Payne does not strike me as someone who particularly likes his characters in those early movies. Mm-hmm. He did not get warm and fuzzy until later. Um, we already talked about the descendants. Right. Um, I think he sort of looks at everyone in Citizen Ruth with more or less an equal amount of contempt. Mm-hmm. And it, because of the nature of the comedy, it still works. But like, um, I think Michael Shannon sees them more three-dimensionally and has a lot more empathy for them. But at yeah. the same time, that like hyper, super dark, um, just like cynical worldview of... Um, not like these people don't have inner lives, but like the structures that these people have created for their community and the way they Mm -hmm. operate when confronted with tragedy um, and like the way that it is so profoundly darkly comedic at every turn Mm -hmm. um, really made me think of something like Citizen Ruth and especially with the way those two pastors are fighting for each other. There's like an alternate version of like a movie like Election or something that Mm -hmm. is those are the two main characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought I thought it was very interesting um, how much Christianity is a part of this movie, and there is a criticism there of Christianity, and especially of American Christianity. Um, but it's not something that's wholesale rejected because, um, as you said, you have Laura, who is kind of handling this tragedy the best through her faith, um, and. She and of the other mothers, she's the only one who completely ghosts the meeting. And, you know, just like, you know, you have the you you kind of sit and and watch this really painful scene with Janice um, sitting down to talk to um, Stephanie and Jill with Steve doing a horrible job of moderating the conversation. Horrible, like just um, unbelievably cringy. Yeah. Just like the most, in, a, in fact, I will say this is the scene to me. Um, those two scenes where the mothers are get together and Steve is leading it. Mm-hmm. That's like the part where the movie strains credulity a little, where I'm like, these women would be losing their fucking minds a lot sooner at this man. Then I be- I then I believe happens. Yeah, I I think I think that um, it's because he is their pastor as well, and I th- and I think that there is just so much social weight given to that role that it would take a lot for someone for for like a member of a church to get as upset at the pastor as as Stephanie ends up getting what almost strains the credulity of that scene is, you you know, Presbyterianism is a pretty old established uh, um, sect of Protestantism. I don't know too much about it, but I'm pretty sure to be a Presbyterian pastor, you do have to go through a certain level of training. You probably need like a degree in divinity. Chaplaincy is a is a part of that. So even if you're not um licensed therapist, you, you still do have some training in bereavement counseling and things like that. It just didn't really add up to me that Steve would be as inept as he is. I mean, even yeah, though even though he is in way over his head, just given given the nature of the loss, but this is someone who would have at least some training in like bereavement counseling or 
um, or couples, ther- you know, therapy, just being able to like guide people through conflict and the, the way that he is constantly interrupting and sort of micromanaging and setting up arbitrary rules. If people it's, accidentally stumble towards something productive, he will shut it yeah, down if yeah, it doesn't it match his vision of what it is. Yeah. So, it, I mean, un- unless unless there's supposed to be something in there about how, how his pride is sort of getting in the way and like he's just sort of constructed this narrative... For his own narrative of how this is going to go that he's completely blinded by um which i didn't really pick up on but but that that sort of did kind of strain the scene for me but also it does bring about this interesting approach to the conversation which is even even if you have you know steve kind of on his worst behavior crushing anything that that's built up i mean i mean how would these women have have this conversation like like what is the what is the conversation he doesn't know. They don't know. I don't know. You don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> then again, when you are watching a scene that is the worst possible version of it, I was at least sitting there being like, I'm imagining a different way this could go that yeah. at least would be more productive in terms of like, you know, I, I you know, I, I would probably say if I was Janice, then I would just go, I want you to ask me any question you feel you need to ask me. Right. Like I, I first... Like this needs healing needs to be a two way street, but mm-hmm. like I'm gonna you have the right of way because yeah. my child murdered your child. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing that I actually find really interesting about this movie is so much of it, especially at the beginning, especially if you go into it with the expectations of this is a drama about just like the worst possible moment in this mother's life, and you it is just maximum sympathy. It is just maximum. Like, God damn, this must be so fucking brutal every waking moment to be her. The movie does not let Janice off the hook. And in fact, Janice is like a deeply flawed character on her own just because she spends so much of the movie reacting to people who are more obviously flawed. Yeah. And then by the time you get to the final scene, you sort of realize where Janice is. Yeah. When uh, what she's willing to do yeah. to find her own peace and like yeah. what denial she personally is willing to embrace yeah. once she realizes that no other person in the community will ever connect to her, she like turns into like, she, I, we, I don't want to spoil every single moment and this is literally the last scene of the movie, right. but like she sort of turns herself into a horrible person in pursuit of finding someone else to connect to um, in that last scene. And I think that's fascinating. And I do think like you get the first glimpses of that in those scenes with the three mothers Mm -hmm. where you're like, this is not how you should be acting Janice. I understand this is like insane and difficult and you're not going to be, um, you know, uh, operating the most efficient emotional way when, when you're in this state, but like you're really um, not giving them you know, even openings to what they need. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, it's because she is also deeply flawed. This Mm -hmm. isn't a movie that's happening to her. She is in it as well as everyone else. Right. Um, And, and I think, I think what the movie even suggests is that she's not ready to have this conversation. I mean, in, in the beginning, she tells Steve that she's not ready for the conversation. And then as you said, she doesn't, she doesn't have anyone to connect to and she's so alone. And it just kind of gets to the point of, Maybe she's agreeing to it out of desperation. I think so. Um, and, you know, if if she had more time for, you know, for her own healing or her own, you know, support, if she had someone to talk to who was more of an expert in, in this kind of area, you know, may, maybe she would show up to that conversation being more 
open to actually communicating with um with with Stephanie and Jill um but it it seems at 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 best it seems premature. Yeah, for sure. Um so the the humor really surprised me about this movie. Yeah. The other thing that surprised me is, and again, I I have not read, I didn't review, read any reviews. I don't even know if a trailer exists for this movie yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the image on the Chicago International Film Festival website is just a close-up of Judy Greer's face mm-hmm. in distress. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, I from that, I projected what I thought this movie was going to be. Mm-hmm. And one of the key things I thought was like, oh, this is a movie mostly about her character. And while I would call her character the lead, this is a definitely much more of an ensemble piece than I was expecting going in. Yeah, it's about a community. And everyone is fucking great at this movie. We both said this last night, and it definitely was the case that this is a really solid ensemble. Um, Judy Greer's performance is unbelievable. Um, She is... uh, she, She lets the horror and grief of the situation completely transform her, how she moves, um, the, the, the look on her face, how she talks. It's, I I mean, she, she just walks into every scene, like radiating pain. It's, it's a, it's a really, really moving performance. And it's, and it's the casting where I think we talked a little bit before we saw it, we were like, Oh, it's, it's, you don't necessarily think to cast Judy Greer in the dramatic role of this, of this kind of heavy material, but like, she is actually perfectly cast because every single moment is a hundred percent real, mm-hmm. and all of the pain and all of the emotional turmoil and and all of the like real um, heavy stakes of that character mm-hmm. are always present in every scene. But she still has like certain instincts of comedic timing yes. that can let that absurdity really shine through, mm-hmm. and it and it doesn't feel like she's going for a joke, and it doesn't feel like she's trying to play things for humor, but like fundamentally seeing these things happen to her makes them funnier because of the timing of her reactions. Yeah. And, and some of the, some of the, the sarcasm um, that, that she brings sort of works to, to deflect and, and kind of defend her much more bitter sarcasm than you normally get, but still that like sarcasm that you, that you come to sort of associate with her comedic persona. Yeah. She, she employs it so well where it's, it's funny, but it's, painful at the same time because you you, you just see the, like like her character and another character just not connecting with each other when they both so desperately need it i i you get this like almost sense of glee from her interactions with uh with ron alexander skarsgård uh-huh. character her husband because every other person in this community can point to her and go you're a fucking piece of shit and somewhere in her heart she believes that's true right. and she can't do anything about this um, it, she gets harassed at work. She works at some sort of supermarket. Yeah, uh, like, like, yeah, like a Walmart, like a Walmart knock, knockoff kind of. Um, and this person comes up and starts asking her all these really probing questions about guns, and she keeps trying to step away from the conversation. But it's just this like shitty teenager yeah. or college age student or whatever who's just like needling her about everything because yeah. because he thinks that she deserves it because yeah. she raised the fucking school shooter. Yeah, and he and he's not even like angry or indignant. Like like he's 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 holding back laughter. Right, right. Well, he's, which is like a. A lot of people who like you know you like look at trolls on the internet or whatever they right. they go well it's a worthy target and therefore any fun I have at their expense is totally validated right um and how worthy that target is depends on you know how they're programmed by whoever they choose to follow but like 
she can't do she can't push back against anybody and then every time ron opens his stupid fucking mouth and says something <laughs> stupid it's almost a fucking relief that finally she has higher status over someone right. like she just like it's it's like a sublimely frustrating situation mm-hmm. but before the movie even starts you kind of get the idea that it's like okay then there's no sense of how are we going to salvage this marriage the marriage is done oh yeah and like she has already left the idea of like this is my husband is like that's a fact that's not uh that's not important a part of who she is yeah and so like anytime she can just be like why'd you tell me that fucking story about not being able to tell our kid about the birds and the bees what did that have to do with anything yeah like there's just that like part of it is genuine frustration and Mm -hmm. anger and then part of it is just like finally i can lash out at someone my idiot husband (laughs) They said in the in the Q and A after that they had a lot of fun shooting this movie despite the the heavy um, material and I I it seems it seems like there was a little bit of that like uh, like like the relationship we saw in Addicted to Fresno between Judy Greer and Natasha Leone where it seems like her and Alexander Skarsgård were having a lot of fun uh, kind of dueling it out you know absolutely um, something else that I um, really admired how uh, Judy Greer handled in her performance. Um, the the script I, so i i don't have any familiarity with the play um and i know that this is an adaptation of the play but it does keep a certain aesthetic that feels uh more theatrical than cinematic to me um where there's um sort of a I, I i'm i'm trying to put my finger on it. i think i think a lot of it has to do with in in theater there has to be a certain economy of storytelling because of the limitations of you're on a stage right you can only have so many people waiting in the wings there's no there's no theatrical equivalent of an establishing shot right you yeah. just have to be there and when you are writing a play you are kind of thinking to yourself well if i ever want like any hope of getting this produced it does have to be feasible and and you do have to think about it practically you know if at least at least that's been my experience where i'm kind of thinking where where i'm just kind of thinking to myself like oh if i ever want anyone to take any interest in this like i can't go bananas like, right. like you can writing a, a screenplay um so that means that a lot of there's a lot of verbal sparring there's a lot of um things that that happen like completely over the course of a conversation in one room or in in like like a a, a set number of um of locations and you sort of have uh like one character who is a bit more representative of a certain point of view than, than there may be in a, in a movie. So for instance, you have like, you know, the other mothers and there's, there's the three of them and, and you have the, the one who is very angry and who is willing to call Judy Greer to task and who's willing to say this meeting's bullshit. And then you have the one mother who is, um, you know, on, on the other end of the spectrum who has just, you know, given herself over to Jesus and she doesn't need the meeting. And then you have the one who's, who's in the middle and is just so, so much like given over to the like mothering emotional labor of how other people are feeling that she like just speaks in small talk. And these, these just feel more archetypal than, um, than another, uh, movie 
um, that that takes on a subject like this might like I'm, I'm kind of thinking of um, this is completely different but bad luck banging where um, you know it, again this is like like a, a controversy around a school and you have like a meeting of the parents um, to discuss it and it's this like deranged conversation but you have like um more nuance because you have like 20 or 30 people who are all arguing with each other so it's not just like oh this character is the character who's found healing and this character is the angry character it it doesn't feel as um as archetypal with the sort of theatrical um flourishes in the script i think that judy greer does such a good job of balancing the reality of the movie with the sort of artistic touches of the script so like when she says things like the other mothers like i said you can hear the capitalization when she says it but it still sounds realistic it's still you know it's still a very grounded and natural mm-hmm. sounding conversation and she just manages to balance it so well yes as someone who walks this path of between like sitcom comedy or like small independent drama or whatever like she has all of these different modes that she can operate in and she finds that she finds that reality um again while uh acknowledging the certain absurdity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah, another thing that makes the film feel theatrical is Michael Shannon as a director does have these, uh, a certain uh, aesthetic ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is like the sets are really sparsely decorated. Yeah. Um, in, in a way that theatrical uh, sets tend to be more suggestive than literal yeah. um, in terms of set decoration stuff. Like their home is very empty. Yeah. Um, I think he uses like soft focus and he, sort of alienates characters within the frame mm-hmm. in a way that like makes their the environments they exist in feel a little um bizarre and like yeah. unreal. Yeah, like like uh, Tracy Letts's church is basically like a black void like like that that prayer meeting that they're at it's, it's just like like they're just like surrounded by darkness and there's like a spotlight on mm-hmm. him and it's it's you're like you said it's it's very just suggestive like you don't see a church like you know? i i think i predicted before we saw the movie that it's like oh yeah it's going to be a lot of handheld because that gives the actors more freedom mm-hmm. in terms of movement or whatever because they're just going to follow it and it's going to have more mm-hmm. of a documentary feel because to me that is sort of like the default low budget indie like we watched grandma recently like right. grandma is just like just follow the actors right. with the cameras and then we'll have a movie right and i think what michael shannon does here is actually much more interesting and mm-hmm. much more concerned with how to tell the story visually in, a, yeah. in addition to the performances yeah 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 there, there were definitely some formal touches that i was not expecting and, and was um impressed by there there was a, a moment where um janice's uh, Janice is driving around and she's just getting more and more frustrated and he he takes this sort of like French new wave approach of you, you just see her in the car but there are these like really sudden choppy edits where time passes and time passes and, and you know she's got she's got the window open and then it's closed and then it's open again and she's smoking a cigarette and it's just um you know uh very uh Godard um which was like I was like oh well look look at you Mr. Mr. Fancy Man with your with your editing um <laughs> um uh yeah yeah but but there were definitely or um you know there are characters who who have these uh yeah I think I think it's specifically like Janice and Ron kind of have these monologues where they're just talking about remembering Eric's childhood and um those get kind of broken up by uh by sort of flashbacks to these images of of their memories Mm -hmm. um or there's even points at which you see a younger version of eric in the room with janice or you know something something like that to kind of you know show where her her mind is visually the kind of flourishes where in a theatrical production you wouldn't 
be able to do right. that kind of thing. Right. Um, I, yeah, it's, it, Michael, I don't want to say like Michael Shannon's a, a revelation or, or anything <laughs> like that. Like, I think he does descend into cliche. I think like when there, she's remembering camping and it's just sort of the disembodied camera going through the forest and like, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of Terrence Malicky, uh, you know, shallow focus close up of like raindrops hitting a tree stump and stuff like that. Sure. That's where I'm like, okay, yeah, that's where the cliche comes in. Right. Um, but like it, it is a difficult movie tonally. It is a difficult, it is trying to do something more than like, let's do maximum justice to a horrible thing and make it as realistic as possible. It right. is, it is addressing bigger concerns. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's not just the script and the, the performances. I do think like the reason it comes off at all is because Michael Shannon has an idea of how real to play things. And mm-hmm. like, he understands how to stage the absurd humor of things. That's mm-hmm. just like, it's just on this side of, it's like more naturalistic than bridesmaids. But like <laughs> when um, Ron is sort of like, has, he has been sort of talked down by Laura, the, the mother who is totally at peace with her son's right. death. And uh, he doesn't know what to do. He does his creepy thing that apparently is a problem with him, which is he offers her a neck massage. Right. Um, and right. She sort of realizes that this is important to him and she just goes, well, that's fine. Okay. She's also a little bit older. So it might be like she doesn't see it as a, as a come on in a way that someone else might or whatever. But like the way it's framed, all three of the other people in the room slowly turned their heads in the background and and like they're out of focus in the foreground as he's giving her a neck massage and they're all just staring at him. And it's so funny, but it's, it's like, it's just a little bit more natural than it, than you would shoot a reaction shot in like a broad studio. It's just this subtle shift in focus and the timing of it just works so well. Um, So it's like a lot of little choices like that is like build up to the, the job that Michael Shannon did to make the, kind of movie that Eric LaRue is. There's also the um the scene uh that kind of comes after that uh where <laughs> um where Ron is sitting by himself at a table at a restaurant and he's um sort of <laughs> yes contemplating or whatever and then you you see um the you 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 get you get the shot of Ron sitting at the table and then you get the counter shot and Jesus is sitting with him and, and it's Jesus with the with the crown of thorns and the loincloth like he's just stepped off the cross and Ron has his coke with a straw sticking out like like the like the kind of like typical like pebbled plastic cup you the, get yeah, the in a red restaurant. pebbled plastic yeah. translucent cup yeah. that is like every tavern and pizza place yeah. you've ever seen and, and so Ron has his cup and then Jesus has his own cup of soda that he's drinking from <laughs> <laughs> I, like that to me, I think is probably the greatest image of the whole. Like, there's something yeah. so fundamentally correct about that vision of middle class Midwestern like spirituality. Yeah, like it yeah. just, I, and it's like hard for me to parse out, but it just makes perfect fucking sense. Like, super bloody crown of thorns, uh, spear in the side, blood stained Jesus yeah. sipping fucking Pepsi from his little plastic cup. <laughs> It's, it's yeah. like like this premise that it's like everything that Jesus asked you to do very comfortably coincides with your like cloistered middle class existence yeah. in, in a single image. Yeah, which is like Jesus. We, Jesus is with me in this tavern. Yeah, and, and it's and it's it's like it's, it's a little Banksy. It's like maybe a little obvious, but like it just in. The, but also, it's it, it's how Ron's mind yeah, works. It's it's, it's <laughs> so justified by the emotional reality of the characters, and it is just like yes, I have definitely met this guy a hundred yeah. times. <laughs> 
I, 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 that moment was particularly funny for me because like, like on one hand, you know, I, I did have a lot, I did have a lot of contempt for, uh, this character's approach to religion and, and sort of how he, uh, uses it as, as sort of, uh, an, an anesthetic, uh, for his life. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, I, I am a, a religious person. I, I'm a polytheist, so a bit different from, uh, from Ron, but I, I won't say I've never made an offering of a of a soft drink uh, <laughs> when when there was not another option available. I won't say I won't say it's not happened. So maybe I'm not so different from Ron after all. <laughs> um, there's uh, the there's another woman in Ron's life. Speaking oh, of the Lord. of the ensemble cast in this movie, who really I think this is Allison Pills. The best performance from her I've ever seen. Oh, I would she agree. Is, this is yet another so woman funny. who who has like who in the face of just like totally unspeakable horror and trauma and just like the worst possible thing you can ha- imagine happening to your small town. Yeah, uh, sees this as an opportunity for her to gain some sort of like power. Uh, in the situation by like, yeah. I am really going to speed run my redemption by like being the most involved with the hu- with the yeah. with the father of the murderer. I... And like, doesn't that prove what a fucking good Christian I am? And by the way, my understanding of uh, empathy and and like sexuality and like the tantalizing, not quite uh not quite flirting that I like to do with it. Like that, that is also something that I have not fully unpacked for myself, but yeah. is immediately evident to everyone around me. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, uh, Lisa is, uh, Ron's coworker and specifically I, her, his he, HR director. Yeah. Yeah. She's the director of HR at his office. And, um, you, you kind of, you kind of get the sense that the reason that, Ron and Janice no longer attend the same church is because Lisa's given him the hard sell to come to her church because like you said you know there's been this horrible tragedy in her community and she thinks to herself well how can I make this about me yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how she chooses is to to save Ron's soul through her her chosen flavor of Christianity as opposed to the to uh the, the church across town that he's been uh, attending and 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 like you said, uh, she is sort of trying to seduce Ron into being born again, um, and you you never you never really know where she's coming from. I I kind of interpreted it as she does have a bit of a crush on him. Oh yeah, but uh, needs to needs needs to keep those feelings in a really specific box right. so that she can be saying the right thing but still kind of um be stringing him along in these ways like like offering him like a really really familiar hug which he I mean because obviously he he is getting no no kind of emotional sucker from Janice is and, all, and certainly no physical. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it is is more than willing to to have the, this hug from her, but it it does kind of feel like it would be interesting to to read her diary. I think I I, <laughs> I don't think she is so calculating that it's like this is part three on my seven step plan to fuck him in a motel. Right, right, like, right. Like I I think 
she is someone who is bored in her marriage yeah. and is very sexually excited at the thought of like teasing and tantalizing herself right, right. with the with the with like the all of the like, makings of an affair. Yeah, it's like, it's like yeah, it's like she wants to be the object of desire but she would never cheat because right. she's not supposed to cheat. So she makes herself the object of desire uh, for the glory of the Lord. <laughs> and, and she is so fucking funny and so intense. And it is, it's a very different character than Janice, obviously, but it is that right. same thing where it's like, she is so a hundred percent locked into who this character is and how they're reacting. And like specifically the detail that she like works in HR is just like so fucking perfect yeah. because it is just like every human resources person you've ever met. It seems like vaguely anti-human, <laughs> not like she isn't a human being, but like that she views human beings as resources. resources. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've met, I've met that person. <laughs> I've 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 been on the wrong end of those meetings. <laughs> like um and it, and every time she's on screen and she smiles that big fucking like 34 tooth smile yeah. uh, like unbelievably yeah. funny yeah. and and so <laughs> powerful and it's like and Ron is such a fucking dweeb and like he's just yeah. like he is so just like the he is such a 15 year old boy the first time any girl has ever given him any romantic attention at right, all like he's right. just like oh gee oh wow well i guess we should yeah no probably like he just like it's like he can't calculate any of that but he is loving the attention and oh, yeah. like he is like it's kind of like I don't know what his life was like before, but given that he, you know, like they, we, we hear a little bit about Eric LaRue and he would come home every day crying and it was like mm -hmm. a very traumatic. In the final scene with Eric, I think it is heavily applied. He is on the spectrum. Um, mm -hmm. And that there is that, that like Eric's life has been one that is full of constant struggle to connect to anybody around him or mm -hmm. whatever like it does it does come up in the conversation with the mothers that um the boys that he murdered bullied him uh which which automatically gets overwhelmed by um are you saying that they deserve to be shot because they didn't how dare you say that which is which is by the way that is absolutely the right way to react i think um and annie paris who plays stephanie who's mm -hmm. the the mother who who gets to express her anger like that is wildly inappropriate way like given where they are in the conversation yeah like the idea that janice's first real bit of information she gives is one i don't know where he got the gun and two your sons bullied him is like janice like fuck off like they yeah. like that is not like it is so horrible and I, I think i mean i i agree with you i don't think i don't think that that would be at all an appropriate conclusion to draw i i think that that janice is being thrown out there with no structure and yes. no guidance right. and it's just that but so this are is they. something that's true and and but it's just like it's just like like this bullying situation is something that that has been on her mind and oh, has yeah, been yeah, gnawing yeah. at her and, and she can't tell like, it to anybody right right and and so it comes out at the wrong moment and it's it's like and and she has a need to like tell them this and obviously this is something that she should have confronted them about as soon as it happened right uh they had, they had no idea any of this yeah happened. yeah yeah that's that's what they say they say oh we didn't know about that the 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 camp that they were at didn't tell us and it's like okay well janice fucked up because she didn't she didn't take the 
the the impetus to to talk to them while everyone was still alive. Uh, just a real, just so I can put a ball on the thing I was oh, going sorry, to say. Um, you don't know what Ron's life was before this shooting, but like Ron is like, there's like a very dark implication that in some ways Ron is like, this could possibly be the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. Like, uh, like this is, you know, my life was rudderless and then yeah. my son shot three boys to death and now look at me. Jesus is my pal yeah. uh, and he's taken all my burdens and I don't have to worry anymore. And, yeah. and, and everyone, everyone just <laughs> tells me how, how good I am and, and yeah. how brave I am and how, like, what what a strong path to redemption I'm walking. And like, mm-hmm. like boy, all this attention, I you know, like, yeah. you really get the implication that he's like, and he's reveling in it not because he is like the most horrifically cynical piece of shit who's ever lived but because he is just like retreating right and like this is this is where right. this is and, a and, place that is comfortable for him and and possibly just just because of you know um you know you, you don't you don't get a lot of information about the community that, about the community that they live in but you do get the sense that um this is this is a a community where church is extremely important to everyone and there's no mention of any other kind of um social or emotional supports so you know uh given the the conservatism and like how um gender dynamics tend to tend to play out it's possible that like he's never been asked to do a a lick of uh, self-reflection or emotional labor mm-hmm. in his life mm-hmm. and and he has just been buoyed along by his his mother his wife you know whoever and he's never had to confront something like this I, I will say that is that is in some ways where the origin of this film being an adaptation of a play from 2002 mm-hmm. feels like the most evident which is that for a long time I was watching this movie and he there's a really ridiculous anecdote he gives about like a boy listening to music too loud in his headphones so he prayed for the boy to go away right, and right. when you see the headphones they're like old fashioned Walkman over the ear foam yeah, headphones yeah. and there was a moment where I'm like oh does this take place in 2002 because it's right. because it's so um, not rooted in detail and because yeah. everything does feel that sort of yeah. slightly abstract but then thing. they have smartphones they have smartphones and I go okay I guess it's 2023 I don't I think now there is so there is I think the way people talk about mental health and trauma and men and women and mm. gender like I, I understand there are different communities and stuff like that and it's not the same for us as it would be for them or whatever yeah because pe- pe- people got their bubbles no, no no I understand that I'm just saying like there this is a movie that feels unrooted in the contemporary moment other than like in the broad thematic way the way characters respond to each other and react and talk and everything it doesn't feel like a 2023 movie it or it doesn't feel like a 2023 script Mm -hmm. and i don't think that's a problem because again that feeling of the the vibe that it's unrooted is what sort of allows it to get away with this very tricky tone that it's walking between comedy and tragedy yeah yeah um but like i i will say that was like I, I kind of wish there wasn't a smartphone. I kind of wish there were there. It was like two thousand two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Michael Michael Shannon, just just, just get a, a flip phone. I mean, is 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 it possible that um that one of the hosts of this podcast uh saw you at an art museum downtown in twenty twelve and you had a, a flip phone buckled to your to your belt. Who's to say? You know, as a flip phone buckled to his belt, Steve, the ineffectual pastor of Janus. Well, I know where he got that particular uh, fashion accessory <laughs> idea from. Just saying. Not not to gossip, not to turn this into like the Chicago version of TMZ. TMZ, 
stands for the mediocre za because it's Chicago. <laughs> it's, I'm so glad that we we took that walk for that punchline. <laughs> Me too. Is, do you have any like criticism? Like, is there anything about the movie that you th- thought didn't work? Because I, I think overall, this is a movie I'm I feel very strongly about, and I think I think it was a very good movie. I don't I don't know that there was anything that didn't work. I I think that this is a movie that is very obviously an adaptation of a stage play, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily a bad thing just that it makes me wish that I had seen the stage version of Eric LaRue because it seems like um it 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 just seems like that is it's more natural medium with with the way that um the way that that Brett Niveau writes it it just seems like his artistic voice is a better fit for the stage um but you know, as a writer, I think, I think, you know, he's very strong. Um, there's like a real music to how he writes um, that I found very enjoyable. That's a, that's a minor quibble. The, the, the reason that they, uh, that they ended up making this movie was because, um, you know, he wrote, um, he wrote this in, tw- in 20, in 2002. Um, I believe he said that it, that it was sort of uh, out of the Columbine shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, uh, and then Red Orchid, uh, brought it back to their stage in 2018 and while they were rehearsing there was um another another shooting that they were made aware of i don't even know i mean who's to say which one there's one like every you know month or whatever right um but um but you know they they just sort of realized that oh it's it's 21 years later and this is still something that's that's very much a, a topic and is very much like affecting people's lives all the time in this country so um that's kind of what um inspired them uh to make it a movie before we saw the movie uh i did say that the premise made me think of we need to talk about kevin right um same yeah but i i think it and it it does end up being um a very different kind of movie um where it's not so much about the psychology of who is this kid and who would do something like this and you know could this be prevented and and you know what is the nature of this kind of violence this is this is more a more grounded kind of situation there's a lot more gray area um in the characters yeah i i yeah we need to talk about kevin feels like a nightmare it like feels yeah. like an anxiety nightmare I, more I than it feels consider, like a I would consider, grounded film about a real person yeah yeah for sure i i would consider uh we talk we need to talk about kevin to be a horror movie sure personally um but but yes so so i think i think the the sort of the sort of genre for lack of a better word is uh very different even if the subject matter is quite similar mm-hmm. Um, but it, it did make me think about, um, some plays that I have read or seen. Um, it made me think about David Lindsay Bear's Rabbit Hole, where again, there is the sort of like tragicomic approach to, um, uh, a married couple who, who deal with, uh, the, the sudden and really horrible death of, uh, their young son. It also made me think of, uh, another play, uh, called Gideon's Knot, which is by a playwright named Jonna Adams, um, which is about a mother confronting, a teacher and uh, the the teacher disciplining her son um, seems to be the, the triggering event for the son dying by suicide, um, and it's sort of about the 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 confrontation between these two women. These are both works where it is more about what does it mean and what do you do when you are a responsible adult for a child who dies unexpectedly or does something you know so like unexpectedly 
terrible. What do you do when you feel like you fucked up that big and so painfully and so irreparably? Like, what do you do? You know, just trying to grapple with that question. Those, those are just two works that se- that seemed a bit more, um, that, yeah, yeah, that just kind of came to mind while I was watching it. The thing about Eric Luer I really appreciated is that it doesn't, it doesn't try to answer that question. It it instead tries to examine how all sorts of different answers to that question are inadequate. Yeah. And in hyper-focusing on that, and it's like, it's not a movie about gun violence, really. It's not a movie about, like, what causes school shooters. Like, it's not about, like, a culture of, you know, like, incels and shit like that. Like, it's it's not about, like, why do we live in a world where mass shootings happen every week? Right, right. It, It is about, like, in the face of unspeakable horror... Here are a variety of things that people do, and here are why they are just like comically, grossly, absurdly fucking inadequate yeah. at best. Yeah. And like yeah. childish and horrible at worst. Yeah, yeah. Because like you said, you know, in the in that last scene, you you hear the, the story that Janice is now telling herself and the conclusion that she's come to. And it's really fucked up, but so is everyone else's story pretty much in this movie. It does a really good job of um, of portraying that without being too judgmental or too empathetic. Yeah, um, I think it's very clear eyed um, in what it's in what it's trying to look at. It's it's a heavy watch, but it's not as harrowing an experience an audience member as I was expecting it to yes. be. Yes, very much so. Like. If you are someone who you can watch dark material, but like wallowing in the darkness for the sake of wallowing in the darkness is the thing that sounds like untenable and Mm -hmm. unpalatable to you. Like this is a movie that is, it feels in many ways like very original and and surprising and exciting and just uh, like it, it is not wallowing in darkness for the sake of rubbing your face and how dark the darkness is. Right, right, right. Um, it, I, I actually I did want to bring up one thing, which okay. is um, I recently saw Midnight Mass, which I think two years ago is a TV show Mike Flanagan uh-huh. uh, did for Netflix. One of his many like large ensemble uh, sort of horror TV shows that are like sort of horror, but mostly character studies and about people processing trauma and grief right. and that sort of thing. Right. And it is like insanely indebted to Stephen King. It is basically him remaking Salem's Lot mm-hmm. with a slight change. Um, and in that movie, he tackles a lot of uh, the petty politics of a small town and specifically the role church plays in a small town and the way that people can find power and position and privilege with uh-huh. by like working the uh, inherent sort of social dynamics of a church. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it's not it's not a show I really like very much because like the way it does it is like every character just sort of talks about that for seven minutes in a monologue. Mm-hmm. And then another character talks about it for seven minutes in a monologue. And it's like not, it's dramatically pretty inert. Like mm-hmm. from the first two episodes, you kind of know everything that's going to happen. And then it's just sort of this waiting game is people just spout endless amounts of dialogue about their grief and, and stuff like that. And like, it's it's it like 
going into this, which tackles a lot of those same themes, but like is so dramatically interesting and like the way characters play off of each other and the things that are said and not said and like the shifting who has, you know, who has the upper hand in any given scene and how those things shift and how people uh, get what they want in different scenarios. Like all of that sort of stuff is just like so exciting mm-hmm. in Eric LaRue that it was funny to have recently watched what I, th- I thought was a pretty mediocre version of it, uh, you know, just within the past couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Kind of to, to bring it back around to plays, which I'm sure everyone's like, yes, please tell us more about plays. That's why we're listening to a film podcast. No, how about <laughs> this? How about please, God, finally a film podcast with someone who has a frame of reference other than those <laughs> the same six Martin Scorsese movies everyone talks about. Yeah. I'm living for it. Tell me, tell me more plays. Um, Samuel D. Hunter uh, is a is a playwright who I really like. And uh, as far as uh, movies, he's pretty much just um, just written the screen adaptation of his play, The Whale, uh, which sure. I will never see. That's okay. But uh, I, despite that, I am overall a big fan of his work, and that uh, that topic is. Um, something that he returns to time and time again that that is like the the role that religion plays in small towns um, especially how it factors into situations where uh, people are grappling with big burdens like grief and loss and isolation and how it can be two-sided where it, it, it can be the only lifeline that people have to grasp onto but it can also be um, a way for people to be uh, manipulated and controlled um, and and I think he does a really um, great job of exploring that he he wrote a play called The Harvest which I think does a really it's about um, it, it's about these uh, these young people in a church who are preparing to go on a mission trip um, and and one of them is sort of having second thoughts and is also um, dealing with with the grief over his father dying by suicide um, and how the uh, the the people in his church and and the the leaders in his church uh, specifically um, just completely fail to to support him in in that trauma. Um, it's a really beautiful play. Um, so you know if you want to, uh, you know I don't know. I like plays. <laughs> I didn't I didn't really have have uh, have have much more to to say about that. But um, sometimes I like to be sad over fictional people. And sometimes I, I like to read to read or, or see plays. So we're going to mix it up a little bit in terms of the formal structure of 96 Greers. And uh, instead of bringing you the other segment right now, um, we are going to skip ahead to judilization. Um, and if you are really interested in hearing more about the uh, the nuts and bolts of the making of Eric LaRue. Um, stick around after uh, the outro because we have a special other segment to you, which is uh, a recording of the Q&A with Michael Shannon and... Brett Nouveau at last night's premiere of Eric LaRue. And even if you don't want to learn more about Eric LaRue, you just want to hear Michael Shannon make some colorful metaphors. And talk about how great Judy Greer is. Talk about how great Judy Greer is. Make make some great local references to the Swedish population of Andersonville. And hear me go woo really loudly. <laughs> we he, he's, he's an extremely charming man. It was a really fun Q&A. It so sure stick around was. after the show for that. First things first, we will be ranking Eric LaRue in terms of judilization. Um, not how good the movie was, not uh, any other metric besides how well does this movie utilize the 
talents, the acting talents of Judy Greer. Currently, we've got 15 films on the list. Worst Jutilized, still in memory of my father. Best Jutilized, still addicted to Fresno. Um, my immediate thought for Eric LaRue is that it is uh, somewhere among our current top three. Um, so a uh, number three being Aporia, number two being good boy, number one being addicted to Fresno. Um, at number four, we currently have the wedding planner. I think she is better utilized in Eric LaRue than in the wedding planner. Agreed. Okay. Um, it, and it's tough to say because they're extremely different roles in extremely different part, um, points in her career. But at the end of the day, I mean, I, I think she, you know, she can do that heavy lifting um, and she m- more than adequately proves herself in, in Eric LaRue. And it's it's really um, it's really wonderful to, to see. Um, how do you think how do you think this ranks um, compared to Aporia? Uh, I think it, it goes above Aporia. OK, yeah, I, I'll agree with that. Um, they're, they're similar movies in a lot of ways. Do you think she's better utilized than in Good Boy? Yes, I do. I, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and okay, lay it out okay. there. We don't have to we don't have to build a suspense. Like an embarrassing thought as a person sitting down and watching a work who's supposed to be suspending my disbelief and engaging in the emotional lives of these fictional characters and thinking about theme and meaning and you know uh-huh. how it reflects on my own life and my right. own foibles as a human being on uh-huh. this planet. At some point while I was watching this movie, I thought, "God damn, we have a new number 1." <laughs> Okay. Like I, I, I okay. literally thought about jutilization while watching this movie, which is maybe a little sad, but I, I did jump ahead, and I, there's, it, there's no question to me. Addicted to Fresno of the comedies we've seen is best captures the tone of comedy that Judy Greer works good in, and it pairs her with a lot of actors that uh, are fun to watch her bounce off of, particularly Natasha Lyonne. Right. Eric Larue we get to see the full dramatic power of Judy Greer trained actor who, despite being in a lot of sitcoms and stuff has the chops to, you know, deliver powerful drama. Also a comedy also in that role gets to be extremely funny. Also those instincts and that timing and that sarcasm that we talked about, like Eric LaRue is the number one to me. And I, I would I would like to hear an argument against it just because I, I can't think of any. And but like I think it has to be a strong argument for me because because it is just to me, it is so clearly above Addicted to Fresno, a movie I liked more than I thought I would and a movie that fits Judy Greer very well. But like by no means, I would say a spectacular movie in the way that I felt often Eric LaRue is a spectacular movie. And the and it's spectacular in the way it slots Judy Greer among other things. I don't. The thing, I see you hesitate, and I'm I curious know. why. Well, I'm I'm just I'm hesitating because I don't want to put Eric Larue at number one. Ne- I, I, I'm just hesitating because I'm wondering, like, like, is this automatically saying that um, that knocking it out of the park in a dramatic role is more of an achievement than knocking it out of the park in a comedic role? I would say that knocking it out of the park in a dramatic and comedic role in a dark I, comedy. I don't think 
that I would consider her role to be a comedic role, though. I, I mean, I, getting into definitions is weird. She's extremely well, funny and extremely moving in this movie. That's that's what I'll say. I agree with you where I think that there are moments where her her sarcasm or her delivery or her timing, I don't think she's the source of comedy in this movie. I, I don't think that's her job in this movie. I mean, and, and I hear what you're saying with, with like where it's hard to categorize because there are moments where mm-hmm. she's funny but i think and I think, when other characters are being funny they are funny because they are working with her reactions and she's she is at a she is at a tone in this movie that no other character really is which is why at the end she is sort of reduced to having to go talk to her son right. um and like try to find some com- uh, uh companionship there because she is so uh ostracized from everyone else around her but like the scene where she comes back to work and her boss is like yeah give me a moment and then just like like rolls her eyes like right before like all of that is like that judy grew is part of what makes the movie funny this yeah i i just think that when we talk about judy greer as an actor we can talk about the roles that she has been traditionally slotted into, mm-hmm. which is the wedding planner, which mm-hmm. is 13 going on 30 and 27 mm-hmm. dresses or, 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 you know, Archer Arrested Development, mm-hmm. that sort of broader comedy. Um, but like we have seen firsthand, um, you know, literally in, in the case of the Steppenwolf stage, like we've seen firsthand, she is a very talented, powerful, dramatic actor. And I think a movie that shows a new dimension to what she is capable of um, while also retaining all, like, while also benefiting from all the skills she has yeah. from the previous work. Yeah. Like, that to me I guess, is... I guess I'm just thinking that, like, a lot of the reasons that I think she's so great in Eric LaRue and a, and a lot of the strengths that she brings to it, that she brings to that movie, are also the strengths that she brings to her character in Addicted to Fresno, where she is playing a character who is you know, by most accounts, very unlikable, Mm -hmm. um, but still um, giving, giving you enough uh, empathy for that character to make it a highly watchable movie and make, you know, make it so it's not a burden to spend time with this character. Um, And all, and a lot of that is sort of, um, you you know, balancing the, 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 the prickliness with, um, you know, with, with sarcasm and, and with kind of seeing that, um, that this character is is prickly for a reason because there's like a a sense of like like survival and and a sense of like like someone who feels um, just like these really um, heavy feelings that they don't feel like they can let anyone else in on. I yeah I agree with all of that. I also and this is something I've butted heads with Jim and in other podcasts I've been on, which is like at the end of the day, um. It's not a it's not a one to one. It's not uh there's not a algorithm that it's like a actor's performance is this plus right. this divided by this times right. this. But like yeah. at the end of the day, like if the script is better, that gives more opportunity for the actor to do better and to The script is definitely better in Eric LaRue than it is in Addicted to Fresno. Like like for example, to use to use a wild example that is gonna ostracize people because most people disagree with me on this. I think the script to Mike Lee's Naked is bad. Mm-hmm. And therefore all of the people who rave about how great David Thewlis is in it, I don't agree because I think it's an unbelievable character in an unbelievable movie mm-hmm. because at the center of it, the script is bad. Mm-hmm. And it's like on a technical level, oh my god, he's talking so fast, and it's like so many like really complicated lines of dialogue and it's da, 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 da. it's like okay that's a physicality but like it's a bad performance because it's an unbelievable character in an unbelievable world in a movie that's bad mm-hmm. and and like I do think to some extent like given great material 
that gives you a greater access to great performance um in you know and again like this is this is like breaking it down into a way that's like kind of uh, dumb and too literal and anti-art and whatever, but like, but like, I but do. We're the think... jerks who decided to make a numbered list. Yeah, like, like we go. brought it. We brought it exactly. upon ourselves. Exactly. Like, I just do think that like this movie is better, and she is better in it, and this movie benefits from having someone like her as the center. To like, for a long time, she is sort of the. Th- you know, again, like mm-hmm. by the time you get to the end of the movie, you sort of understand it as an ensemble piece and you understand her as a more flawed character than you mm-hmm. initially thought. But like so much of this movie is about living in her head and experiencing the absurdity of this world around her yeah. through her and yeah. the tightrope that she walks and tonally everything and all of her skills yeah. and everything that has led to this moment where finally she's in, you know, the fucking lead in a really interesting comedic, dramatic, tragic, like fucked up, weird, like like dark, bleak, hysterical, like all of that is just like, this is Judy Greer's like moment. She, she has been sharpening her fucking swords uh, for decades now. Mm. And now she, and she is like prepared. And that to me is just like, that's why I sit here watching a movie I really like. And I have a stupid thought, like this is the best utilized movie. And we haven't seen Marmaduke yet. So I, I don't want to say... We haven't seen Marmaduke, but that is why this is a living list. Yes, that's you right. Know? So so we, we, we shouldn't hold ourselves to... to to that task but that um, but i do that is why like i look at addicted to fresno uh-huh. and i do think that is a movie that is definitely elevated by judy greer but there's only so much she can elevate it because i do think it is also just like a kind of silly and often kind of dumb broad comedy right that's right like, i don't think all of the emotional beats work i i think i think the argument that you're making there where where this is a um th- this is a work that comes out of decades of um, hard work and experience and being in such a variety of of films and and she's really um she she you're right she she does have this uh this chance that we don't often see for her to um to bring us this really challenging character who is um really human in good ways and and bad ways and um it's such a lived-in performance, as I said earlier. I, I, I do again. It's we're, just we're... not fun if we agree, you know. <laughs> also, it, I do agree. Like, I you do want to fight against. Like, if the idea of Judy Greer is she's the utility player who you put into a position, and then suddenly everything gets better around her. Yeah, and it's like she doesn't actually need to be the lead of a movie in order to like be great. It, the whole adaptation argument, where it's like she's yeah. in the movie for ten minutes and three scenes, and it's just like holy shit! Like, what a like she really carries that whole. Yeah, yeah, little, she yeah, she just brings she just brings that like extra level. It does feel like going against that to be like all of the top movies are the movies where she's the lead. Like I do understand yeah. that instinct. Um and also like uh I do understand like you don't want to be like most acting gets the award as opposed right. to, you know, best, you know. Right, right. Or yeah, most acting or, you know, hardest to watch. Um, which, as we said, this isn't that kind of movie, but it is kind of that kind of movie. And and we're not spoiling the ending of this movie. Not it's not that kind of movie. There's no twist. Right, There's right. in fact, like almost everyone in this movie is a static character. It's a yeah. it's about watching them struggle in that position they're stuck in. Right. Um. So I don't spoil is is a is a weird word, but like I really think I have maybe undersold like how much I was fucking losing my mind with where she goes in yeah, that scene yeah. and like how she sort of reveals 
you know, in the final moments of this film, who she actually is and like yeah, the depth right. she's willing to sink to. It, it's not so much spoilers as there's no way for us to do it justice by talking sure. about it. Um, it's just, it, it's like a, yeah, it's definitely a moment where you just have to kind of experience and, and also it. you deserve to gasp as, as yeah. much as I did. Yeah. But like, like that's fucking, like that's Judy Greer. Yeah. Yeah. Like Judy Greer is not like, we love her the most and therefore she's the most cuddly, wonderful, best friend. Oh, America's best friend. It's like, yeah. no, there's something like kind of prickly and dark and like, I don't quite trust her yeah. about Judy Greer. And that is also very true <laughs> in this movie. You know, I, I, I think that you have made a really good argument and I... We can bring out the coin if you want to put it no, below no, no. to Fresno. I... I don't, um, because as I said, I just think it's more fun if we disagree. Sure. Um, and I, I guess, I guess I just wasn't quite as gunning for number one as you were, which is totally fine. But I, I think that you are making a completely sound, reasonable um, case for Eric Larue to be number one top utilized. Uh, so I. I will agree with you, and and, and we can we can absolutely uh, put it at number one we'll until do, until we see Marmaduke. Until we see Marmaduke, but you know what? That's not on the schedule uh, just yet. So Eric Larue, uh, number one out of the sixteen movies that we have uh, reviewed for this podcast so far, um, and uh, we're the, the the hits are just going to keep on coming. And next up, uh, we will be talking about. The 2003 action comedy, The Hebrew Hammer. I'm pretty sure it's an intense social drama about anti-Semitism. I'm pretty sure it's an action comedy, but we are doing it in time for Hanukkah. So um, you'll hear uh, two uh, recovering Catholics talk about uh, comedy about being Jewish, and it won't be awkward at all. I am so <laughs> fucking scared about trying to... It's like, Anti, this is this is anti-Semitic. Oh, and Jews wrote it. Probably, I don't know. <laughs> Thankfully, we are recording ahead of time, so we'll we'll have enough time to to work through our our problematic feelings, and we'll we'll re we'll reactivate been, our Tumblr accounts. We'll get it figured out. There's never been a better time in history to talk through these feelings as well. <laughs> anyway, anyway, ninety six Greers is part of the Now Playing Network. Check out the other podcasts at nowplayingnetwork.net. Follow us on Mastodon at 96greers at laserdisc.party. Follow me on Letterboxd at Panda Bear Shape. Follow me on Blue Sky and Instagram at Uptown Song Club. You can email us at 96greers at proton.me. And until next time, I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And, and say, say goodbye, goodbye to these.
But my question is, why this one in particular if you address more of the youth? Why are you doing that? Well, there's a deeper reason for me. The first one being that I just love the heck out of this guy. And I think he's a true story There's so many beautiful works for us at Red Orchid over the years. And uh, so I directed a play he wrote called Traitor. Uh, it was a modern update of uh, Enemy of the People. And uh, on closing night, I believe, uh, he gave me the script for this. And I read it. And uh, I, I was very reluctant to ever direct a movie. And then I read this and it was like a total flip. It was like going from I'll never direct a movie, I will never over my dead body or do a movie. I gotta break I gotta break this one. I might never do it again. I know I haven't even started answering your question, but the point is uh, I think this movie Like, because I spent a lot of time kind of watching people. And I've been studying people for a long time. That's what I do. Studying the general, you know, atmosphere. And uh, this movie really seemed to be about this country. And a lot of people say, oh, you made a movie about gun violence. You made a movie about religion, or you made a movie about religion. And for me, if I only had one word to uh, describe the movie, I would use the word confusion. The movie about confusion. The movie about how confusing it is to live in this country. I used to get real upset when Trump got elected president, and I had said some very vitriolic things. Old people that vote for Trump should just go ahead and die. And then, I, and then I spent a little more time thinking about it and maturing as it were. And I realized I don't I don't love America or hate America. I don't love Republicans or hate Republicans or whatever. Do what you want. But this country doesn't make any fucking sense. <laughs> There are other more dangerous places to live. I mean, you could be in, you know, the Gaza Strip right now. You could be in Afghanistan. There are other more treacherous ways of life. But this country doesn't make any fucking sense. So I want to make a movie about that. And I did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I was there the whole time. And, and 
A lot of questions during the strike, uh, during the FWA strike, I should say, uh, were about having a writer on set. And I was incredibly lucky to have producers and a director, I haven't known Mike for a ton of years, and we worked together on stuff and uh, have been out a lot of times just talking and, and he's one of my best friends. And, uh, and, uh, and so it, it, the, to be there on set and to have that collaboration was, uh, it was kind of a no-brainer. We would, we would shoot the day, and it was hard. You saw, that's hard to do. It's our, our actors having to do lots of difficult stuff, lots of difficult conversations. And I mean, the humor too, this is the Chicago audience, and it's so nice to see y'all got it. And uh, <laughs> I remember when I back and I'm like, this is funnier than I did. But anyway, um, to be there and to have the conversations were just as valuable, the conversations with the actors, the conversations with the crew, conversations with Michael, um, are, were invaluable. Uh, again and again and again and again. And you can see that on the screen. You can see the collaboration there. And uh, Mike talks about this, like, you can tell when it's not there. When you see a film, you can feel it. You feel when that's, that, that there's just something missing. There's some sort of existential issue. But in this case, because we talk about all that stuff that you mentioned anyway, not even in relation to this, this film, um, that those conversations end up in the art too. And so that's, that's where that, that all sort of uh, was born. Was the, um, I guess were there comments or judgments that were stood as you were shooting and working together on No, I told Brandon it was perfect. But I, 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 I mean, that's why I wanted to do it. If I didn't think it was perfect, I wouldn't have done it. But, but there was a, a couple of little tweaks in the edit. There was um, a couple of things. But I was very, I'm very, I, I put the writer is the eye of the pyramid, you know. I mean, like the writer's really, uh, if I read something and I'm like, oh, I don't identify with this, I don't understand it, or I frankly just don't find it very interesting, um, then I don't do it. But if I if I read it, I don't understand this stuff. Like I've had so many experiences. Well, that's a digression. But like, <laughs> like um, yeah, if you, if you read it and you think. Yeah, this is this is the, the this is humming. This is humming for me. And just then you just do it. Um, yeah, we didn't uh, we didn't change much. For me, there's obviously it's a it's a quiet film. It's incredibly intimate. It's intense, and I think it starts with. Well, it's quieter than smiling at that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I have seen quieter films. I saw a film called Integrate Silence, which was a three-hour documentary about films. Where there was no doubt it was uh, that's a quiet film. That's a film Integrate Silence. You should check it out. That's quieter, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, the film is quiet. And then, of course, the amazing performances. But I think that the 
You know what he did? I swear to God, I didn't have to direct the guy. Did I say anything to him? Maybe once or twice? There's a lot of speeds in the Midwest, I'll just say that. That's true. <laughs> uh, it's the Ann Sather's Corridor. <laughs> Bill Express. Yeah. No, and then, uh, and then I had a, like my Chicago folks, you know? Uh, so many beautiful, beautiful actors. I'm very glad to put some Red Orchid folks in there. Because, uh, they're kind of, yeah, uh, they, they're amazing. Like a tarot deck or something. <laughs> the ungame game yeah, of actors. And uh, I'll, I'll say too that on set, and Mike did talk a little bit about this today too, we had a panel or interview, and uh, how uh, all of those people, and this is really true, aspiring filmmakers take note, chop your uh, cast and crew full of friends, people that you like people that you enjoy, who want to be around each other, who like to be around each other. Who, and then that's the shorthand for sure, but it also makes just being there just better. Uh, you mentioned Judy, and um, one of the most charming people in the whole wide world, so that makes it easier. And then also all the rest of our cast, a bunch of charmers themselves. And then you got us, who are us. And then, uh, <laughs> It, it made it fun. You wouldn't think so, right? That looks like a drag making that sad film. But um, <laughs> it was, we had a really, we, well, one of us done, done shooting for the day we would go out. Every night almost. <laughs> have dinner, have a drink, blow some steam, eat giant steaks, uh, and then sleep. And then the next morning I'd wait out in the hallway and Mike would walk out of his hook is right across the we were all at the residence. Yeah. At the residence. So Brad and me and Judy were like the, the trainer. We were all in the same. Yeah. Walk out the door and there's Mike coming out his door. Judy walks down the hall and we go to work. And wheels too. And wheels too, just down the street. But down the street, down the hall. Yeah. Yeah. Felt like down the street and felt like a neighborhood, a neighborhood project uh, to make a, a sad, funny film. Um, and that joy uh, among the actors, among the people that you you gathered for this film, made it happen in a big, big way. You mentioned when you were thinking about the DOP and wanting somebody to come see that, you were thinking about the actors and how the cinematographer relates to the actors. Were there other choices that you made as an actor thinking about when you're directing, what would you want for the actors in your film that guided choices? Yeah, just quiet and like, um, I, I, I want them to feel uh, safe, and I don't want them to be waiting around all day. Um, and once we're in it, we're in it. Uh, I don't like big adjustments. Like if we start to set up, don't tell me after take two that you need five more minutes for the lights. I'd be like, no, no, too bad. These people are doing, you see, the way I talk about filmmaking is like, we're going to take something that's pretty much impossible and make it completely impossible. 
That's what it feels like. And I try to avoid that. One thing he said that I mentioned this to you too. He also said this analogy, but I'll never forget now. But he said it's like we're all on set and we're all working together to try to get to the point of what's going on. And I'm there too, and I can have a the conversation and Mike would ask me questions and say, Okay, I want you all to know this actually happened to Brett. And I and I'd be like, Oh man, he has to make me explain my 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 trauma here for a moment. And so I would have that, and we'd have conversations and conversations, but he said this. It's like we were all looking for a lost earring. We're out there like, where's the earring? Where's the earring? Where's the earring? Tiny, tiny little tiny earring. But we were all on task. We were all looking for the earring. And so um, it was always about finding the, 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 together to find the truth, to find that earring. I think you found it. Um, and, um, I, was, I wanted to go back to this question of the moral when you were writing it and thinking about structuring it because it's like gradually different layers are peeled back and you know the characters themselves are constantly changing in terms of their relationship to what has happened how they're feeling about it and in relation to the other characters how they're feeling about each other and if you could talk and then of course ending with the final theme where we see Eric and the mother so if you could talk a little bit about constructing a script in this way where it's just constantly evolving. You feel like you're writing these different ways with the characters. Uh, I used to be an actor uh, a long time ago, but I still write like I'm an actor. And so it's all about um, want and need and tactics. Um, we talked about that in rehearsal too. So I try to front load it for myself and ask the questions. So my characters are always having to change their tactics to get what they want because they're confronted with obstacles. So if, if Steve is not getting what he needs out of Janice, he's got to try something new. He's got to try, you know, controlling her. He's got to try yelling at the moms. He tries all these things. And the same for all of them. And I think that makes for a progressive journey because there's frustration. You know, I teach, I teach screenwriting in Northwestern, so I don't know. I won't, I won't nerd out here at all. But um, it's a, the, the rising tension is so important to me. And that our main character especially is confronted by their uh, subconscious need again and again and again. And we see it there. What Janice needs to do is get the fuck out of town. Get the hell out of here. Get away. Um, whether it's like you were saying, you know, America and confusion, just go away. And I feel really bad because we have like Mary Grimm's character, her, her boss, who's so semi nasty, but he's telling him, he's like, go home. He's a son of two children, he's also kind of a dick. Sorry, Mary. And um, <laughs> that is what she needs. So I, track, I, I try to track that, I try to track that again and again and again, and I try to um, live those experiences before we, we get to that place because. I need to learn, and I also need to be a, a good sounding board for my director. We need to have those conversations, and I also need to be open to new tactics and new ideas, and, and having to be a good collaborator in the moment. Even, I mean, Mike said that the script didn't change much, but even the smallest things in this script, even just a line or two, Mike can text me like, "I want to change this one word," and I'd be like, "Okay," uh, and. Even the smallest things we would have questions about or conversations about, I think that that's important when it comes to the way the tactics are used. 
someone else isn't going to come up and say it's okay and that's just not going to happen so she has to do it either for herself or not I don't know I don't even know that redemption ultimately is that the end game redemption I don't know what happens after redemption you just go and make a mess out of everything again. <laughs> so, uh, but it's interesting what you said, Brett, because it's, it, 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 there is a there is there is a real power of suggestion in Genesis. Like even in the first scene, where uh, Ron asked her if she wants to go to Sizzle and the Inns with him and Lisa, and she's like, "I was just out of the house." And she goes to work the next morning and says, I thought it was time to get out of the house. So it's like she's, it's not like she's not taking in everything that everybody's saying. But it, it's, it's almost like she's doing what I was doing. Uh, Jeff Nichols told me, he, when, the first time Jeff saw the movie, I showed my 
because he's an executive producer on it, and I showed him my first draft. And he, he had a lot of notes, but he said, you know, here's the thing about notes. What you do is, is someone gives you a note, and, and you think, okay, A, I'm not going to do what they said. <laughs> B, why the fuck did they say that? <laughs> and C, what's a better thing I can do that I like that will address your note but not be anything remotely close to what they suggested that? And I think that that's what Janice is doing. So in a way, she's like, I'm confident. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us.